On today's episode, we are talking mental health, physical health, and phone booths. Listen up today on Recur Now. For Profit Wells Boston HQ, it is Wednesday, November 13th. I'm Abby Sullivan. I'm James Herrick. And I'm Grace Gagnon. It's a beautiful day to subscribe. Up first, your daily subscription rundown. Today, I'm intrigued by health, first in the mental realm, with the latest episode of This Week in Startups, a podcast of, quote, the most interesting, outrageous, and illuminating stories from the world of entrepreneurship, during which host Jason Calacanis interviews Brian Chen, co-founder and CEO at Room. So what's up with Room? Well, Brian Chen is building phone booths for the modern office, sharing insights on maximizing open floor plans, partnering with the Calm app to reduce stress at work, and maintaining capital efficiency as a hardware startup. I'm intrigued by this one, too, because we know at ProfitWell as a bootstrap startup that working in an office of this nature, you know, an open floor plan can mean settling for limited resources, working with the space you're given and sometimes taking calls from the stairwell. It's not always like that, though, but I know what you mean. I mean, our call booths were literally handmade in-house. And that's very true. We are very resourceful. So I was keen to hear more about Room and the benefits of this hardware for small companies because there is beauty in an open office layout, sure, but there's also some dangers to be wary of. Yeah, and there's rules you can implement, like the headphone rule, which we follow at ProfitWell, and it means if you have your headphones in, don't talk to me. But that doesn't always work, right? Like, James, I see yours on and I still bother you. Yep, you definitely do. (laughs) Well, listen to this clip from the interview that touches on heads down work. People save a lot of money with open floor plans, but the downside is if you need to make a phone call, you have to take up the whole conference room for one phone call. Absolutely. And so these phone booths have become a thing. Well, the other downside is mental health, Yeah, you know, because in the open floor plan, uh, people are, it's very distracting, it's noisy, you can never find a moment to, to focus. Yeah, but now people do like the, you do, you do do library rules. That's what we have is library rules, which I think is like, you can whisper, but if you can have a longer, full-blown conversation, take it into a conference room or take it outside or whatever. Yeah. That's kind of the ground rules now, right? We had so we had a library room in our office as well. We ended up having to no, no I said library rules. Oh, right, library rules. Yeah. So basically, you just tell your employees like, listen, we're gonna have an open floor plan, but it's library rules, which means you you don't just start talking to people randomly when they're reading a book. You let them read the goddamn book, and if you're gonna say something, it's a whisper, and if you're gonna have a conversation, you take it outside. Well, when you have the library rules, then it kind of defeats. I think the original intention of the open floor plan, which was like, because the open floor plan originally was designed to encourage more conversation, more right. interaction, collaboration. Yeah. So when you when you introduce the library rules, it kind of it's actually defeats the purpose. So that's where room comes in. I'm super into this concept because I know a little quiet time can be key to productivity in my day. But for some, it may seem outrageous to spend almost $3,500 on a booth. That being said, I did try one out during a conference in San Jose and damn, did it feel like I was in a spaceship. This seems like a conversation for another day, but I can't say I'm not all ears. We're all searching for that sense of mega productivity, but where do you find the balance in your workspace? Let me know at abby at recurnow.com and I'll be sure to ask our CEO. Patrick to consider. But for now, James and Teen Zuo on the future of fitness. 
In a similar health realm, Zora co-founder and present-day CEO Teen Zuo highlights the future of fitness because recently there are signs that the fitness vertical is starting to crack wide open. Take Fitbit's headline-generating announcement of a new subscription program, which, according to CNN, will include thousands of workouts and a health report you can give to your doctor at your annual physical. We're seeing so many more options, Teen can attest, from wearables and clothing to supplements and workouts, all of which are delivered over streaming media. So how do you handle handicap a market like this team considers. The big hint, usage. With all the choices out there, the services that come out on top are the ones that keep users engaged. Teen points to Peloton, which started as a Kickstarter in 2014 and today has over 500,000 members with a reportedly impressive retention rate, although their reportings are up for debate. And Teen points out that this space is about to look dramatically different in five years as gyms evolve from physical locales to mobile fitness services. But again, the key to it all is usage. That's where the real gold lies. Later in this episode, we have a spotlight on Teenswo so you can get to know the subscription master at his finest. And in David Cancel's latest newsletter, The One Thing, he highlights the idea of mental health in entrepreneurship, something I know is often overlooked, but so incredibly crucial to consider. He writes, almost a year ago, I pinned this tweet to my feed. The tweet reads, the hardest thing for an entrepreneur is not what you think. No one ever talks about it, but this will make or break you. People, process, products? No, it's dealing with the emotional turmoil. Managing the emotional roller coaster is the hardest skill you must master. And thereafter, he lists a few things that have helped him deal with the emotional roller coaster, like talking to others outside your organization who have gone through or are going through the same challenges, or reading about companies and people who have gone through this period too. Context is important, and what Drifts DC learns every time is that this pain is normal, and that's helpful to hear. Number two, practicing gratitude every day. There's an app he uses every morning called Day One, where he writes what he's grateful for, what he will do to make that day great, and daily affirmations. Number three, acceptance. If you've ever heard of the serenity prayer, it says this, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. DC says he tries to keep this in mind and practice acceptance on the daily. We couldn't agree more with these sentiments, and I have to ask, how do you deal with the turmoil of the everyday, whether you're a CEO or a newbie hire? Confide in me at abby at recurnow.com. I am all ears and zero judgment. Let's help each other and those in our space get better because this conversation should not go anywhere. And that's a wrap on your subscription news. Up next, a spotlight on Zora's talented teen duo. Today's subscription sapien is Teen Zuo, who, as the founder of Zora, has given hundreds of other entrepreneurs the tools to manage their own subscription-based businesses. Zhu may be a veteran of the SaaS space, being one of the first employees at Salesforce and remaining there for nine years, but he is not afraid to be radical. He and his team would go to crazy lengths to get customers and mindshare in those early days, from putting sales reps in taxis with their competitors' potential clients to protesting the Apple iPad. Zoo believes that instead of building a product and finding customers, you should identify your user base and build a product around them. You have to think about things backwards, right? You have to think about things in, 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 in the reverse of what the conventional wisdom is. And so the conventional wisdom might be you create a product and then you go find customers. I don't think it works like that, not in the early days. I think you start with a customer and you say, there's a set of customers that have a pain point, and I actually know who they are. And you can even test the idea. 
And so, um, you know, before we actually launched the product at Salesforce, we probably had about 200 people that were already signed up to, to, to join the beta when, if and when we released it. And uh, Azura, we had a signed customer contract. I think it was for um, about $50,000 a year. And the contract was written to say, y you obviously don't owe us any money until we deliver the product. But we had built a prototype yet, but we hadn't actually created the product. And, and so, um, and so there's, there's, there's a certainty that you can go into the exercise with if you can start from the customer and understand what the demand is. As one of the earliest adopters of the subscription model, Zoo has a wealth of knowledge. So it's no surprise that he literally wrote the book on subscription. In his book titled Subscribed, he evaluates subscription past, present, and future. With all kinds of companies incorporating subscription into their business, the pricing model may seem like a no-brainer, but this was not always the case. Zoo was integral in showing the bigwigs on Wall Street the subscription way. There's a new business model that invalidates the existing incumbents, Oracle, SAP, ERP systems. And so it gives us a chance to build something brand new. That being said, if it really is something new, then you have to spend a lot of time, right, you know, evangelizing it, but, but explaining to the world why the new thing is the new thing. And it takes time. And, and I remember the first time we convinced um, folks about a subscription-based business model, we came up with the term subscription economy in 2008, and it didn't work, right? We actually said, this is not working. Let's not use this term anymore, right? So we stopped using it. We tried, like, business cloud. We tried all these other things. And then, in, you know, in 2009, I, I think uh, maybe, like, Netflix started truly transforming the subscriptions, and so we dusted off the term subscription economy, tried it again, and this time it, it really stuck. And, and so you, you need to try things. Same thing with investors. In, in 2004, when Salesforce went public, we had a hard time getting investors to, uh, to understand uh, the business model. I mean, they looked at it and they're like, you're losing money, you're gonna lose money forever, right? Why would I wanna invest in you? I don't understand why Oracle and SAP can't just take you guys out. And so, so Salesforce was not a runaway success um, in the initial years. It took like NetSuite, SuccessFactors, and a bunch of other SaaS companies to go public before people realize, okay, well, maybe, maybe this, is, this is going to be real. Just one of the ways subscription has flipped conventional business knowledge on its head is that it's all about the user. Understanding your users is crucial to building success, which is at the cornerstone of Zora's strategy and trickles down to all the businesses they help and their users in turn. How do I develop a picture of a customer? Right? How much have they purchased from me in the past? And, and what are they doing with my application? Right? If you're a product company, start putting sensors in your product, start collecting that information, but tie all that information back to that customer record, back to that, we call it a subscriber identity record. And then look at it. And then you have fundamentally three questions. You know, is your growth in the future going to come from acquiring more customers? Right? And how are you going to do that? Right? And then you do that with services. I'm going to go down market. I'm going to go international market. Or is your revenue going to come from increasing the revenues per customer? which means you need to cross-sell, upsell, redefine your bundles, and so on and so forth? Or is your revenue going to come from reducing churn? We were talking to a gaming company, and they said, you know, we sell a lot of games. And when we come up with a new game, we know we can sell a million copies of the game. And people will pay us $60 for that game. And then two years later, we'll come up with the next version. 
right? Before it was version 10, now it's version 11. And we know that only 50% of our customers that bought that game, you know, the old version two years ago, will buy the new version, 50%. And so to a subscription company, that's 50% of your customers churning over two years. And then what the CEO said is, you know, if you take that $60 and we take it over time, right? We take it over two years, but we're forced to keep the customer engaged, right? They're not playing the game for two weeks and they forget about it, right? We're going to keep them engaged. We're going to keep them coming back. We're going to create new versions. We're going to create light versions for their phone, right? Whatever it happens to be. And we keep them engaged with the brand. We know that we can hold on to a lot more than 50% of our customers over that two-year period. And that's a much healthier business. This is how companies need to think. Start with the customer. How do you hold on to the customers? Don't worry about taking all the revenue up front for a product sale, but how do you get them engaged with you over and over again over a period of time? And then how do you wrap your revenue model, right, to be reflected, to reflect the value that they're getting from that engagement, that experience with you, right? That's the starting point. Now, yes, there's huge implications on how you price, right, how you design your products, how you go to market, right? But, but start with that because that would inform all the other decisions that you need inside your company. If you enjoyed this snippet into the subscription sapien, share this and make sure you're subscribed to Recur Now to receive them straight to your inbox. And finally, a teaser for Protect the Hustle, our interviews from the trenches. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those who are in the trenches actually doing the work. What is hustle? The word hustle dates back to the 1680s from the Dutch word huslen, which means to shake or to toss. The very core of the word is around shaking up and pushing forward, which is why plenty of the dictionary definitions have some derivation of movement or energy. As Queen Miriam Webster quips, hustle is to obtain by energetic activity. The core of hustle was around changing your environment and shaking things up to produce large scale action. Sometimes that was very positive, pulling yourself up from your bootstraps or running that extra sprint in practice. But other times it was more negative, pool hall hustling or slinging rock. Hustle was initiative and not accepting your circumstances and doing everything in your power to change. Hip hop embraced this throughout the 90s and the aughts because a lot of circumstances in black communities need to be shaken up to push out of poverty by any means necessary. The negative externality of that though was because of circumstances, a lot of times this meant selling drugs or doing illegal activities because there just wasn't another option. But it's important to remember that hustle wasn't negative. It wasn't bad intent. Hustle was that movement of changing circumstance and environment to get to the point where you could go legit. Even in Jay-Z's 90s classics, Can't Knock the Hustle and Rap Game, Crack Game, hustle was the means of taking on challenges to garner wealth and actually hustle out of the illegal means into the legal ones. Johnny and Jane startups embraced this concept of hustle because it meant shoe leather and elbow grease, getting there before anyone else did and going that extra mile to get the deal done. But then hustle changed. Hustle became more gratuitous. In the late aughts, songs like Rick Ross's Hustlin' started to stop talking about the velocity of hustle and just the movement of cash from one place to another. Now it was money for money's sake, not to move out of circumstance, but for cash and cars and just more cash and more cars. Startups started latching onto this word as the gratuitous image of crushing it 
and tweeting out unnecessary vocalizations of superficial feelings of accomplishment. Hustle lost its edge. The context changed completely and hustle became negative because we associated it with not great things and not great people. But the thing is though, hustle still means hustle. Hustle is a beacon to changing your own personal circumstances and destroying the demons that haunt you and try to prevent you from doing that one extra call, that one extra rep, or whatever it takes. Those who protect the hustle define hustle, and that's what we're all about at ProfitWell, keeping that velocity to rage against the dying of things that we find important. And to do our part to the greater hustle community, we're bringing you season two of Protect the Hustle. Stories in the trenches from the people doing the actual work and protecting everything that hustle stands for. So sign up at protectthehustle.com and sit back, relax, and take notes. And that's it for your November 13th episode of Recur Now. If you're not on the list to receive daily episodes, head to recurnow.com for free intel every day. 